Thanks for pressing play. Welcome to a radically different dialogue about thinking with a man who's been called, quote, the world's number one management thinker by former Ford CEO Jim Hackett. He says that our guest today is, quote, my generation's Peter Drucker. Daniel Pink says he's, quote, one of the world's top thinkers. And Adam Grant says he's one of the world's leading thinkers on strategy. Uh, he's also been called, quote, one of a handful of the most successful business school deans in the past quarter century by poets and quants. Today, a radically different conversation about thinking with the legendary Roger Martin. He is Professor Emeritus at the Rodham School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he served as dean from 98 to 2013 and as institutional director of the Martin Prosperity Institute from 2013 to 2019. And in 2013, he was also named Global Dean of the Year. In this remarkable conversation, we dig into what is the definition of thinking? What is the difference between what Roger calls reflexive versus reflective thinking? Why thinking is a meta skill? Why the question, what would have to be true to matters so much? We also look at Aristotle's framework for thinking and how we can use it. Roger has a new book out. It's one of the most important books of 2022. It is fantastic. It's called A New Way to Think. It just broke. It is already a number one bestseller, and I'm not surprised because it's legendary. By the end of this conversation, you will have some new tools for thinking, and we are living, we are absolutely living at a time where a lot of new thinking is required. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine calls us the best business podcast, and The Economist once called me off-putting to some. Whatever you call us, we're really glad you're here. Please join me for the first ever Cloud Wars Live Expo, June 28 through 30, 2022, in beautiful downtown San Francisco at the Moscone Center. It's the world's most important new cloud event. CloudWarsExpo.com, hosted by the legendary Bob Evans, my dear friend, one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, his podcast, Cloud Wars Live, is a legendary podcast that I am uh, proud to guest on. If you're a regular listener, you've heard him here. The biggest cloud companies will be there. The coolest cloud startups will be there. Over 40 hours of legendary cloud education. Check out CloudWarsExpo.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Professor, it sure is a joy to meet you. It's great to be on with you. And I can't uh, tell you how much I deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate your work. One of our favorite expressions around here, we write about it all the time, is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Cool. And so as soon as your uh, PR team reached out to me, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, maybe both of us are weird. Maybe both of us are just weird. Are people who think about thinking weird people? <laughs> I don't think so. No, uh, but uh, you know, I I am surprised at the number of people who seem to not think about how they think. They just think 
Um, and then when something kind of bad happens, they are kind of flummoxed. And the ones who are more inclined to think about how they're thinking are more likely to say, well, maybe I wasn't thinking about that uh, the best way I could. What would be a different way to think about it? Yes. And so maybe let's start at the highest of highest order bits. Uh, and if this isn't, then tell me what it is, which is, okay, professor, what is thinking? I see it as the process of reflecting on your world against a model you have of it. So you'd be thinking if you say, that person just smiled at me as we walked by each other. So that, that was a stimulus to your senses. And to think about it, you have to have some kind of a model in your head for interpreting it. And so you would say, well, you know, when the corners of the lips go up like that, it generally means that that person is, you know, kind of happy, is favorably disposed toward me, not they have a nervous tick. <laughs> that, 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 could be, that could be another uh, interpretation of it. But you have some kind of model that says, this is my method of interpreting what is happening to me. So it is a model for interpretation. And you said it's your world against that model. So does that mean sort of there's something happening in the moment? So you and I are having a conversation. I can see you. Uh, I can see, you know, your gestures. I can see your head movement. I can see whether you're smiling or not. Those things are telling me things because I have a model that says when a human being uh, does certain things, they tend to be communicating certain things. And so I'm laying, in this case, a model for you and I to interact based on my past experience on the present experience that I'm having. And therefore, in real time, I'm thinking about, okay, so what is, uh, how is Roger in this conversation? And maybe where should I go in the conversation? Is that what's happening or, or how would you describe exactly. it? Exactly. No, no, I, you've got it right. And, and this is why when you come across somebody who has a dramatically different model that you have no access to, it's hard, hard to interpret that in a, in a uh, useful way. So let's say I knew nothing about Japanese people. I'd never been to Japan and I'm walking on the street and, and this Japanese person bows as he's walking by or she, let's, let's say he's walking by and I might be like, what the, what the hell is that? Uh, because my, my model would say people walking on the street do not bow to one another. What, what, what's that about? And so in that case, I'd have a, a model that is in some sense too impoverished in its depth and complexity to deal with that thing that happened uh, to me. And I might get confused. I might like shake my head or may like look sternly at the person, in which case that person's model would be, wow, when people shake their head or look sternly or don't bow back, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, kind of being nasty and uh, he'll come up and punch me in the face or something, you know, I don't know, or, or, scowl, or scowl at me. Uh, and, and there you'd have, in, in essence, a clash of models, neither of which is terribly up to the task. 
No, instead the person could be could be yeah, living in America and and uh, you know kind of understands that Americans don't get uh, uh, Japanese uh, uh, pleasantries uh, and respect uh, at all, and so wouldn't take any offense at me just not going at each to say, well, there's another kind of dumb American who doesn't understand anything about. Uh, Japan. Right. Funny, I had that exact experience the first time I went to Japan and started going to Asia. And you're also, I'm reminded of a story. The first time I went to Israel, I used to work uh, in a company that was uh, at least a third, maybe even more uh, Israelis. It was founded there. And the first time I went from Silicon Valley to Israel to kind of meet with everybody and so forth and so on, very much looking forward to the trip. Uh, love the people, love the culture, but ne of course, never been there. And I'm standing there and I'm with uh, sort of the person who I'm going to have lunch with. And we're sort of moving around the building and we see these two guys, one of whom I know is an executive in the company, and they're having a conversation outside of his office. And my lens on the conversation, Roger, is this looks like a hostile conversation <laughs> right, and yes. it might require me to step in because it, this might go get physical. And then yeah, it didn't yeah. get physical and the conversation kind of died down. And I said to my colleague who I was going to have lunch with, I said, hey, what were they just talking about? And he said, they're talking about where to have lunch. <laughs> and so you just realize that business. serious business and at least to a I, I'm also I grew up in Canada. Of course, I live in the United States now, but to my ear through my Canadian lens where we're trying to be overly polite and maybe too much so with each other. I looked at it and thought they were going to break out in fisticuffs when in point of fact, that's what the conversation uh, was. And so is this what you're talking about when you say model, we learn things. And then when we are in a situation that is different outside of the model that we either proactively taught ourselves, or in this case of sort of interpreting human interaction, we sort of experience and then get taught over time. Is this what you describe by sort of the application of mental models for interpretation? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I think you started in a good place, which is the most sort of user designed models. Those are just your life experiences uh, caused you to say uh, those two Israelis are having a fight, not they're thinking about uh, about lunch. But it goes all the way up the spectrum to you know models that you would have been taught in class, where or it's a complex you know kind of a system where where they say, well, uh, you know, if you use this equation to calculate the following, you will get the answer you want. That's that's a more sophisticated, if you will, not no, it's not more sophisticated. It's more formalized uh, model. Your, yours, I would argue, uh, that you described is a little more informal model. You probably have never written it down, right? When I'm in Israel, you know, what's my model for inter you know interpreting? It just it just sort of is. It sits there. Whereas your your model for multiplication was taught to you when you were in whatever grade two or three. It was very formal. You had to learn the times tables, uh, and there's a right answer to uh, to every one of those. That's that's extremely. Uh, formal and models can go go all the spectrum from extremely regimented and informal model to a much more informal model and and things in between. Like there are models that you learn that say, uh, you know, you should pay attention to these five things, right? Uh, that's that's what I call a categorical model where you, there's these categories and you should pay attention to those as opposed to the 
you know, Black-Scholes option pricing theorem, which is an equation that says if you put these four variables into the equation and and run the equation uh, the way the way you're taught, it will spew out a value of an option. Right? That's a that's a formal causal model. Yes. And, Got it. So there's a formal model we get taught in. If we want to become an accountant, there's a whole set of accounting models we get taught right. to prepare financial statements, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if we want to become a painter, there might be some f- uh, sort of medium formal. I don't know if formal is a spectrum, yes. Yes. sort of some yep. concepts, uh, but obviously more leeway for a painter, even if you're training in a certain uh, category of paint, if, I'm, if you're teaching me cubism. But as, a, as an artist, of course, you have uh, um, a framework which you can innovate off of, create off of, that is not necessarily the case, hopefully, when preparing financial statements. No, no, you're, you're right. And, 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 and interesting enough, if you just use that example, uh, you mean, because there's wheels within wheels, like th- there is, in that case, that painter would have been taught the color wheel and be taught, you know, if you want to make this color, you have to combine these two colors uh, and it'll make this color and if you combine too many colors it'll always be brown right and so so they they, they will have within this incredibly free form uh, of i can then represent what i want on a, on a page or on a canvas um they'll still have a couple of of models in their in their mind that are actually actually quite formal but it'll be only for if you will part of the job part of the puzzle yes and um, I have l- more than a little bit of ADHD, so I-, I do want to get back to the models. But before that, I want to bounce a couple things off you, shoot, and just sort of uh, play with them if we could. So one of the f- our favorite things around here to write about and talk about, is, I mentioned thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking, and then the second piece to that, or an adjacent piece to that, is everything we think. We start off by being taught to think that. And that we live in a world today, and you'll tell me if you agree or disagree or or maybe educate me. Uh, We live in a world today. This is an assertion we in my category pirates partners make. We live in a world today that what that says that what most people call thinking is actually the mental retweeting of something they heard that they like that often confirms an existing thought and that existing thought was something they were taught to think. Ergo, what most people call thinking today is actually not thinking. What's your reaction, Professor? My reaction would be, I agree with what you're saying conceptually. Semantically, you might you might say what you described is also thinking, but it is a much more reflexive uh, form of thinking than reflective form of of thinking. So it, it's sort of a bit of a, like a reflexive pattern recognition. Oh, right. Uh, he's talking about, um, uh, you, you know, whatever, um, I don't know, like climate change. And my answer on climate change should be the following because I've learned that should be my answer on climate change. That's sort of, that's sort of a, a, a very reflexive Here's the category. I know the answer in that category. Boom. As opposed to, hmm, yeah, kind of, what if I think through this from first principles? That would be more reflective uh, thought. 
that I mean, say that I mean, that's probably you asked the question. It, probably the way I describe it is uh, two very different categories of thinking, reflective and reflexive. But I don't object to calling non-reflective uh, thinking to be <laughs> just barely thinking or maybe not thinking at all. Okay, so this is this is so great. So reflexive versus reflective. So reflexive in the language that I just used prior to your description, which I absolutely love, is I called it the mental retweeting of, of somebody else's thought that we like or is confirming or is somehow comforting. And, and a reflexive thought, I'm, and I'm, I'm asking this as a question, given reflexive, is a reflex, that is to say, is something yep. that even if we thought we thought about it, we, we maybe didn't think about it as deeply as we think we thought about it because it just came out of our mouths. Versus reflective, which is I say to you what I said to you about thinking and you stop yourself and you think, okay, what do I think about what he just said? You give yourself a moment to think and then you have a more reflective answer. But I, I say that all, uh, Roger has a question. No, I, you've, you have got my meaning with entirety. Right. So, so the way that you have, have categorized it is consistent with the way I, I think about it. And, and, and I get the sense from your question, though you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're a little bit rueful about, about the, de, the degree to which, uh, preponderance of thinking might be more, more accurately categorized in the reflexive rather than reflective, uh, category. Is that, am yes. I, am I right in, in that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I would I would concur. I would concur, right? Um it uh, I I see I see lots of it in it and it's and it's kind of sad, right? Um just because you know, if the reflexive thought doesn't accomplish what you wish, where do you go? Like where do you where where do you go from right. there? Uh, uh, now right. you might say, "Ah, Roger. Well, the place you go is to reflective." Uh, but I, uh, what I find, I guess, is that often people who are practiced with this sort of reflexive thought just get we kind of all, you know, kind of uh, kind of zonky wonky because they don't know a place to go, and they get angry. Uh, and that's why you have lots of fights uh, in, in the world. It's like, well, I'm reflexively supposed to say this. And when you say, no, I disagree, uh, then you are inclined, if you're that reflexive thinker, to say, oh, well, this is a simple situation. You're bad. Let me punch you, or let me shout at you, or or let me get all my other friends who reflexively think this way to come and beat you up. Right? It's it's sort of it, there's there's not a there's not a great end to the the reflexive thinking. Yes, and in some ways, uh, Roger, I could say that a, a big part of my mission on the planet is to um, uh, using your framework, which I love, is to underscore for folks that conflating reflexive uh, and reflective is a big, big, big mistake. And that 
Mm. You might not even think what you think that you think because you haven't taken the time to fucking think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 No, no. I, yeah. You, you haven't, un, what I think of as a, unpacked it, right? Like what does, yes. and this is, this is why, this is why what I, what I uh, always say about, I mean, as, as you probably know, strategy is kind of my, my, the closest to home field. And I always say the most important question in strategy not, is not what is true. It's what would have to be true. If you ask what is true, you will learn what is now. You won't learn much about why what is is. You'll just learn that it is. And that's not going to give you much of a leg up on creating something new. But if, you're, if your fundamental question is what would have to be true for X to happen, you can imagine X's out there that would be better than what you've got now. And then you sort of reflect on, well, how would consumers have to be behaving if we were going to have that kind of thing? How would employees have to behave? How would uh, kind of, I don't regulators have to behave? How would shareholders uh, have to behave? And so you get access to this sort of strength of kind of imagination and building a model of the future that could then, you know, kind of draw you into it, right? To say, ah, you know, this is worth it. This is worth it. If I could make those things true, I, they may not be true now, right? Nobody's going to pay 3X for this this MP3 player just because it's white and it's got a little wheelie on it, uh, you, you know. Well, no, maybe they would. But what would have to be true for them to do that? Well, you know, if we made it really easy for them to get songs onto that thing, yeah, yeah, then maybe, and then maybe they'd think it's not an MP3 player; it's their life, <laughs> their music, uh, and they wouldn't think that it's three times as much. In fact, they wouldn't—they simply wouldn't care because it's a new—it's a new category of things. But we'd have to build this capability. To, and we'd have to get the record companies to sell us songs one at a time because people aren't going to want to download a whole album onto this. They want to pick the song they want on, on except, you know, you, you see where, you, like, if you ask what would have to be true, then you can knock off things that you're, you'd have to work on making true. And then you change the world, you dent the universe. So I think of that as a logical extension to, the positive impact of being reflective rather than reflexive. Professor, is it mm -hmm. wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, uh, my friend. Uh, thank you. That was like incredible. Birds of a feather here. Yes, we're in violent, violent agreement. And as you asked the question, what would have to be true? You know, having spent uh, 36 years in the tech industry and um, been around some incredible entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and the like, what I know is the greatest entrepreneurs ask that question and the greatest uh, venture investors ask it. And I'm reminded I'm um, friends with the folks at Sequoia who invested in Airbnb, by way of example. And I'm friends mm. with the folks at Floodgate who uh, are seed investors, not late investors. And I'm friends with the folks at Floodgate who, by way of example, were seed investors in Twitter. 
And if you think about both those companies as a way to kind of um, layer the framework that you just laid down under that question, what would have to be true? When Airbnb got turned down many, many, many times because the average lens of the average venture capitalist who is typically north of 40 and typically quite well off, if not seriously wealthy, when an entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur shows up and says, what we want to do is rent people's couches. That's insane. And and they go, what's the legal liability? And what if something terrible happens and nobody's going to want to do that? And what are the laws and probably not legal? Like there's a million reasons why if you roll your brain back to 10 or 12 years ago, I can't remember exactly, but when Airbnb was founded and funded, that idea sounds insane. And then even for myself, can I add, yeah, yeah. can I add Chris, Christopher is, is that the natural question out of those, those plus 40 VCs is okay. 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 Just show me the data. Just show me the data that will show this works. And of course, There isn't any, because that's what is. That's asking the question, what is? And I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but last time I checked, um, at the point of analysis, 100% of the world's data is in the past. Have you noticed that? That there doesn't seem to be any data about the future available to analyze you, so you and I are connected. You, <laughs> Roger, you and I are connected on the Psychic Friends internet and don't even know it. In all of my work with startups, I often ask the question is what you just said from the past or from the future? Mm, interesting. interesting. Right? And the whole conversation that we have around category design is. The argument for category design is distinct from traditional marketing and traditional models of competition is um, essentially this. At the highest level, there's two kinds of people in business. There are those who bet on the future looking a lot like the present and the past, a continuation. And there are those who are betting on a different future. And for a different future to occur... You have to, I'm sure you've heard this phrase, imagine the possible. And you have to put yourself in that different future. And, you know, my friend Mike Maples, uh, co-founder of Floodgate Capital, says that legendary entrepreneurs are visitors from the future. Mm-hmm. And if you think about Steve Jobs, who you talked about with the, uh, the iPod and iPhone, ultimately, one of the reasons he was so irascible, one of the reasons Elon Musk today is so irascible is... For somebody who lives in the future all the time, the present pisses them off. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because it's not doing what they want yet. Uh, now, the good news behind your, your, your focus on the imagination of possibilities for the future um, is that one of the smartest people in the history of the planet, uh, Aristotle, actually, explained that 2,500 years ago, right? So you can, you have a good friend on this. What he said is there's two parts of the world. There's a part of the world where things cannot be other than they are, right? So I have this pen in my hand and if I let go of it, it'll fall, 
right? It fell last week. It fell the week before. It fell 100 years ago. If there were pens, then it's going to fall next week. It's going to fall. It's going to fall in California. It's going to fall in Florida. It's going to fall in Antarctica because that's part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. And what Aristotle said in that part of the world is what you must do is rigorously analyze the past because it's a perfect predictor of the future. You can figure out how fast pens will fall, why they fall, and what ways they'll fall. And those rules will be for time immemorial. And he, cre- and, and he wrote something called Analytica Posteriora, which is the foundation of all science. But the father of science pointed out, and this is not taught to anybody anywhere ever. I mean, it's amazing. But he said, uh, but by the way, there's another part of the world. It's the part of the world where things can be other than they are. Right? And so if you ask, hmm, how many smartphones were there in existence in 1999? The answer is zero. The first one was the BlackBerry in 2000. How many are there now? 4.4 billion. That's part of the world where things can be other than they are. And the world's first and greatest scientist, Aristotle, said, in that part of the world, do not use my scientific method. Like he wasn't like equivocating about it as well. It might not, you might have to modify it. Don't do it was, was his thing. And what he said is the only rigorous way to deal with the part of the world that where things can be other than they are is to imagine possibilities, your words exactly, imagine possibilities and choose the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say for which there's the most data. He said, you've got to make an argument for it. Uh, and, and people have to essentially argue among themselves to see which is the strongest argument. And what, what, how could we most easily characterize the entire career of Steve Jobs? I believe the answer would be he did only two things. Imagine possibilities and make compelling arguments. Right. Yes, <laughs> like, and and became you know the arguably most important executive of his of his in, uh, entire uh, generation. Did he do wow. it by crunching the numbers? You know, mm, no. He wanted to do what dent the universe, which is consistent with Aristotle twenty five hundred years ago, saying he he, he said it, it, it's so lovely. Uh, what he what he pointed out is in the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. Uh, the job of human beings is to understand the causes of the effects that we see so that you can kind of optimize to that, right? Like if everybody who smokes, right, starts dying of lung cancer, you know, you say, oh, there's a connection and we should stop people, you know, convince people to stop smoking because they'll always die of lung cancer because lungs and nicotine don't go to go well uh, 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 together. But he said in the part of the world where things can be uh, other than they are, is the job of human beings is to be the cause of the effect they want to see. Isn't that cool? So the cause that's, that's your of the effect they want to see. Effect they want to see. Yeah. And don't you think that's a great job? Right? Like Yes. That's why you should be on the planet, I think. Is Isn't that your job, Roger? I mean, the- <laughs> I've been consuming a, t- a ton of your work of late in preparation for this discussion. And being the cause of the effect you want to see kind of 
you tell me seems to sum up your work. It's what I try to do. Yes. Yes, it is. And, you know, it's not, it's not something I made up. Yeah, clearly. This dude, this smart dude did. Yeah, apparently he was a smart guy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's this thing I have uh, intuitively done for uh, decades now with uh, product development and design and marketing teams which is with these discussions when we're thinking about what product to build or what new features or capabilities to build. And it sort of goes like this. What is the most radically different, most radically valuable thing that we could create in this product that we could get to market the quickest that would position us to design and dominate a whole new market category. So the, the most radically valuable, the most radically different, and the one that we can get to uh, market as quickly as possible. And I just want to triangulate this with you. If you say that the, the method here is imagine the possibilities and then build the most compelling argument, it seems like an interesting overlay on sort of the kind of imagine the possible product thinking that I just described, but I, I'd love your reaction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in some sense, what I what I hear you doing with your admonition of these folks is building a pathway to that future. So you want to imagine a product and imagine how you could get to market with that. And is that product going to be perfect? You know, chances are it ain't. Uh, and one of my favorite, one of my favorite guys is the designer Bill Buxton, who who's the guy who brought brought the world multi-touch, right? Uh, the ability to you know expand screens on on your on your iPhone. And he wrote a book called Sketching User Experiences, where he had one sarcastically named chapter, the instant success of the iPod, where he shows that there were four complete generations of the iPod the first three of which we don't even recognize because the fourth is our mind's eye definition of an iPod. And he said this kind of instant success was the usual Steve Jobs, which was, which was you get it out there, it's got to be good enough, but then, but then uh, you make it better and better and, and better. So what I hear you saying is, you know, you got to have an idea of what you're trying to create, get it out there, and then make it better, make it better. And in due course, you will have something spectacular. And Aristotle, <laughs> for what it's worth, if you were alive today would say, I'd invest in that, right? <laughs> like that would be an approach consistent with him because you're essentially using, like you gotta, what I say from a data standpoint, right? The, the terrible thing about the next 12 months from a data standpoint, the just terrible thing is there's no data in the next 12, 12 months. The wonderful thing from a data standpoint of the next 12 months is that in 12 months, there'll be lots of data about it, right? So, so in some, in some sense, you're generating data as you go, right? So you put it out there and you say, well, people like this about it, but they didn't so much like that about it. Now you have actually data that it can inform where you go from uh, from there. Do you have all the data? No, but you're generating it as you go. And, and if we want to link that to the reflexive reflective, right? Your reflexive 
if you just throw something out there without an argument, right? That's why Aristotle's compellingness of the argument is, you have to say, this is what I think people are going to like and dislike. This is how I think they're going to react to it. So that you can then reflect on what you saw relative to what you thought. Because if you don't do that, you'll just be flabbergasted by what you see. And what you want to be able to do is reflect as valuably as you can, get as many insights out of that, the, that fu those future events, because yes. in the future, they'll be in the past and, and you can <laughs> mine it for everything you want. That's why it's not, do you care about data or not? Like sometimes people, when they hear me talk about this, they say, well, you don't care about the data at all. No, no, no. It's just how you use it for what purpose. That's what Aristotle said. Aristotle, you know, was a data hound, but he said, you use it in this way for this thing, and you don't use it for in this way for uh, these other things. And don't get those things confused or bad things will happen to you. It's so funny that we're talking about this. I literally got a text yesterday, Roger, from a, an extraordinary young entrepreneur who I think has just massive potential. And uh, she essentially asked me if I would mentor her on a more formal basis. And she said her problem is that uh, many of the people she's around bring her to kind of exactly the lens that you're talking about, a data lens, and well, nobody's really ever done that before. And you should do it this sort of prescriptive way that has been shown to work in the past. And she keeps trying to say to him, no, no, that's actually the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to bring this whole new thing to bear. And she said to me, you know, Christopher, I'm tired of talking to these people. They don't get what I'm doing. And what I said to her, it's so fascinating we're having this conversation, is because they don't have the lens that you have. They don't have a, I'm, I see a different future and I want to bring the world to that future. They have a, show me the data. Well, to do what you're describing uh, in the past, people have done it this way. That's what you should do. And her whole premise for what she's trying to do is a whole new thing that isn't connected to that past. Yeah. In fact, I suspect what's motivating her is she doesn't like those things in the past, right? Like, I mean, that that's generally she in my experience. Them. At least that's yeah. That's but that's 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 sort of the the engine fuel for the entrepreneur tends to be dislike, if not downright hatred for the way it is uh, uh, now, uh, and they're frustrated. And often that, that's often why the for most entrepreneurs, customer number one is themselves. You know, I hate this, and I'm going to do. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to fix it. And and then the successful entrepreneurs are the ones where lots of other people like the fix. I always like to describe this moment where that sort of snaps in for whether it's an entrepreneur or an author or a creator or anybody who's generating something new and different. As a, um, did you ever see the Big Lebowski <laughs> professor? Oh, <laughs> the movies. I've, I've only watched that. I don't know, maybe seven or eight times. Yeah, well, uh, me too, and plus plus probably. <laughs> and do you remember there's that that scene in the movie where uh, the dude is quoting uh, George W. Bush, where he says, "This aggression won't can't stand, man. <laughs> this aggression can't stand." <laughs> where they piss on the carpet, and and so uh, I yes. describe this moment where the entrepreneur has this aha, where they they look at the present and they just say. This aggression can't stand, man. This aggression will not stand. <laughs> I like that. My favorite line. My favorite line is is the most sacrilegious line in the movie, though. You don't fuck with Jesus, remember? <laughs> in the bowling alley. That's very bad, but 
<laughs> well, and that character, so and uh, John, is it John Linguizamo? Is that what his name is? The guy I'm that plays the character. It is John, yes, yes. It's yeah, definitely it John. John. I might be getting the name confused. And he's yes. the guy that plays the character in the purple suit who says that. Yes. Yeah, and man, his delivery is beyond legendary. <laughs> yes, yes. A great so movie. If I want to be a person who quest who 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 accesses this kind of thinking, as mm -hmm. I've consumed your work and, and spend more time in the reflective, it seems like one of the teachings that threads through your new book and, and some of your prior work as well is curiosity and questions. So that if I come to you and say something that, you know, maybe you radically disagree with, your reflexive reaction is, no, that's not right. Right. But exactly. Or maybe and, you say and something. And you're bad. And you're bad. And you're bad. You're right. Yeah. If I can, let's say you say that and I have that reaction. If I can momentarily interrupt the reflex and not just start yeah. with, well, with all due respect, professor, that's effing stupid, right? Rather yeah. than that. Yeah. If I can interrupt myself even for a moment and actually think as opposed to respond and say, hmm, though, well, that's interesting, uh, Roger. Tell me more about that. Is that what you mean by cultivating curiosity in this way? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's one of the most you know, powerful things you can do to be more, uh, more an effective person is to have the say more um, uh, response. Hmm. That's interesting. Say more. And it's a good thing. Say more uh, is, just, is, uh, is a good thing because it's sort of neutral. It doesn't say, what do you mean by that? Which might get you to clam, to clam up and say, oh, I don't want a big fight. But if you say, hey, say more. Just give me a little bit more about what you're, uh, uh, what you're thinking. Um, then you get this treasure trove of stuff. And why do I know it's a treasure trove? It wouldn't be very valuable, actually, if you were saying exactly what I thought. Like, what's, what's the big deal behind that? I mean, I might feel cheery that you feel the way I feel, but did you give me anything useful? The answer is no. But if you think differently than I do about, about something, it's like manna from heaven, right? You may have had different life experiences that I didn't have access to that would that would cause you to see this, that, or the other thing, or you may have a different way of having processed uh, kind of those things to come up with uh, with something different. And if I can integrate those into my my current views, my views will be better. Um, so you're right, and all it is is a little interruption. If you can just you know, cut it off, cut off the what do you mean? Just cut it off for a second and say, say more. So how do I train myself to be that person who starts with say more, starts with curiosity, starts with a why, as opposed to just simply reacts and says, no, that's, you're wrong. I counsel people to just do it in less stressful, high intensity situations. So if you t told me over the next two weeks, I'm going to have 20 meetings and ooh, this is the one I'm most worried about. You know, it's going to be really important and I'm most worried about, I'd say, don't do it then, right? Don't, 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 don't practice in the world series. 
kind of uh, practice in spring training. Uh, and, and so just, just start trying it in situations uh, like with a friend who you usually do uh, agree with, uh, who on some point they're like, they're, they, something comes out of their mouth that is sort of like surprising to you. Say more. And if it's a good friend of yours, they're not going to say, what are you talking about, Christopher? What are you meaning by the same or bullshit? Right? They'll say, oh, here's, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm thinking, uh, whatever. And then just reflect on what you got out of it. Like almost, almost come back from the meeting and write down, I didn't know this. I said, say more. And that's how I got it. And Wow. I have a better answer now, thanks to say more. And then you'll be doing two things. One, you'll be building your confidence in say more, uh, and and you will be building your practice in how to carry uh, carry that out. Yes. Now, when I was a young man, I read Peter Senge's uh, legendary book, The Fifth Discipline. <laughs> and there's a couple things that have really stayed with me that connect to your work. One of his big ideas, of course, is systems thinking. And an, another one is, as he describes this thing called the learning organization, the ability to dialogue as opposed to do what most people do, which is you beat me on the head with your opinion. I do the same. I'm trying to win. You're trying to win. And it's sort of this, whether we realize it or not, it's combative as opposed to what I think I hear you describing, which is if we take a curiosity framework to, to listening and communicating and dialoguing, um, we, we abandon that. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm convincing. There's a learning. There's a, there's a, um, we had a, a, a gal named Chelsea Howdley on a legendary, uh, writer. And she said, that dialogue like this is a game of catch, which is I want you to catch the ball and you want me to catch the ball as opposed to hockey where you want to score on me and I want to score on you. And so um, this idea of practicing in spring training is a really interesting idea because what I think I hear you saying is play dialogue catch yeah. as opposed to hockey. Try Not try to score, try to catch. Absolutely. And uh, you, you may find this unsurprising to know that, that uh, my mentor and Peter's mentor are the same guy, uh, Chris Argerus. Wow, I didn't get that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's was my most important academic mentor and, and uh, uh, the whole organizational learning part of the book. So Peter, who is a great guy, uh, uh, you know, very, very smart, did a lovely job of integrating two uh, important in, in intellectual traditions. Uh, one is Chris Argerus's kind of learning organization, double loop learning dialogue, uh, along with the Jay Forrester tradition of system dynamics at, at MIT. Um, and so he is in some sense, Peter Senge is a fusion of Jay Forrester and, and Chris Argerus. And what he what he also did uh, was write a heck of a lot <laughs> more uh, uh, more uh, fluidly uh, than either Chris or or Jay, uh, the guy who holds the Jay Forrester professor professorship at MIT now, John Sturman, is 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 also a better communicator than his 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 mentor, who was Jay Jay Forrester. 
so Peter's a great guy, friend, and uh, and we come out of a, a similar intellectual tradition, as it turns out. Well, which is why you know, um, and and I and if I'm wrong about this, correct me. But Peter doesn't seem to be too active, at least in the external world, in the way that he was several decades ago, and that's why I'm so happy to see you being so prolific along some of these ideas. And so if we could go to one of the things that you talk about, and I want to try to understand more is this integrative thinking. And I was in my sort of preparation for our conversation today. I was also listening to a podcast you did a little, a little while ago, where you're talking about uh, MBA school. And of course, you know, a little bit about MBA school and sort of it, this is my interpretation of what I thought you were talking about, which was this whole idea that we get taught these siloed disciplines, marketing, sales, customer service, product development, et cetera. And you talked about there's no such thing as a marketing problem. There's just business problems. And so how do you overlay your thinking about thinking and this sort of integrative approach and being able to see sort of the bigger picture? Well, I, I guess the, the, this relates very much to what we, where we started on with models. So in finance, let's say uh, you're taught a model and the models tend to arise from economics, but you're, you're taught the Black-Scholes option pricing theory or the capital asset pricing uh, model or how to calculate sharp ratios. And you're taught all these models that take into account finance aspects in uh let's say in hr obhr you're taught models that are based on psychology sociology etc and they say the models say well under these circumstances you should do these things or those things and the problem at least as i as i saw it and and would have said in that and probably in that in that video is there's a inherent assumption implicit assumption at business school is that if we teach you all of these models for handling these uh, a finance problem a marketing problem an hr problem you'll be able to go out in the world and figure out how to work there but none of the problems are or hardly any of the problems will will be solvable entirely by that one model in one course though what I would argue is, is you know, freshly minted MBA is a, a derisive term, right? People say, well, he or she is freshly minted MBA, so of course, blah blah blah. And the what is on the other hand, uh, other side of that freshly minted MBA thing is some error that tends to have der driven from narrowness, um, and so. My diagnosis is that MBAs come out as as thinking their job is to figure out which of the models they learned is most applicable to the problem at hand, not how could I combine these two or three models that I learned to come up with a better answer than the answer that a single of these models uh, would give because you often hear freshly minted MBO. Oh, the freshly minted MBA came out and reorganized re the, the assembly line or whatever to increase, you know, kind of throughput, and all the people quit. Right? That's a uh, 
he or she applied the OM operations management model, uh, you know, kind of queuing theory or, or uh, assembly line balancing or something, but didn't think about the HR dimensions at all. And people are surprised at that, but if they actually hung out in a business school, they'd say, no, that's exactly uh, what they're going to do. That's exactly, precisely what you're going to do. So what I, I what I came to the what I came to the conclusion of is that we had to teach this meta skill, which I call integrative thinking, which is the skill of saying if you have two opposing models, right? What what can you do to take two models that seem to be, if you want to use it, are incommensurable. Uh, uh, and and come up with something that is better than either of those uh, two models, right? So if you're AG Lafley and you just become CEO uh, at Procter and Gamble, uh, and your predecessor has, has spent like a drunken sailor on innovation and tanked your profitability because nothing's coming out of that the innovation uh, uh, spending, and you have all the R and D and innovation people saying, but your predecessor was right. We weren't being innovative enough. And so we need to spend more and all your financial people coming to you and saying, yeah, but our market, our, our, our stock price is down and a half. Uh, and, and the capital markets are mad at you. What do you do? Right. And the normal answer is go halfway in between, cut it back about half. So your profitability isn't quite so bad and your innovation isn't quite so good. Um, but AG instead, with help, he always says. Uh, I'm not sure if it's true, but uh, <laughs> any event says, isn't it true that kind of invention has a different model behind it than commercialization? Um, and if you look at, and, and you kind of need the two of them to have what the world thinks of as innovation, or like a successful innovation requires something to be invented and, and, and then it to be successfully commercialized. And isn't it true that if you looked at all the data from the past, and here's where past data is not to be ignored, that big companies actually don't invent at a better, faster, more effective rate than medium-sized companies or little companies or even two guys or gals in a garage? Um, Invention is kind of more randomly distributed around around the world. However, commercialization is extremely scale sensitive. Uh, you can build a commercialization machine, which we have at Procter and Gamble. Like we're Procter and Gamble, and if we come up with something, we can get a hundred percent retail distribution within eighteen months, where it'll take two decades for some startup uh, 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 to get that. And we're actually really good at manufacturability. We're fantastic at supply chain. We're really, really good at branding, you know, kind of naming, branding, whatever of, of, of an invention. So instead of saying, saying, gee, I'm going to just have to compromise or I don't know how to think about this or I'm only going to think about it from a finance standpoint or only going to think about it from an innovation standpoint, he steps back, is reflective and says, hmm. How's about this? How's about we get 50% of our inventions from the outside so that we can double the number of good ideas we pump through our commercialization machine um, and we'll have 
more innovation than we've ever had at an actually lower cost than we've ever had. So that's, that's integrative thinking, uh, kind of in a, in a, in a nutshell, it's building a new model that takes into account existing models, but doesn't accept them as they are, but rather figures out how can you combine those models to come up with something that's actually better than either of the models. That was awesome. <laughs> now, one thing I wonder about this is, so on one hand, we want to be deeply aware of existing models. We want to be learned about that. We want to understand how a distribution channel works. We want to understand how to bring products to market. We want to understand how to develop those products. We want to study our good deming so we, we, we have quality products, not pieces of shit rolling off the assembly, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all sorts of models that are insanely helpful, uh, both in the invention process and, of course, in the commercialization process. Got that. Awesome. And we have this notion when we go to create and design new categories where we say we're going to start by rejecting the premise. So we reject the premise of, of, of how it is today completely. And that way we unshackle ourselves. There's the, the great scene in the beginning uh, of uh, Dickens' A Christmas Carol where Jacob Marley comes to visit Scrooge and he's dragging the chains. And one of the things he says is, Scrooge, in life we forge the chains that bind us. Right? So when we go to do something innovative, we're dragging our chains. And in some ways, those models are not chains. They're very powerful. But at the same time, if we accept them as such, Per an earlier part of our conversation, if we accept the way it is, by definition, whether we realize it or not, we're saying we're trying to create a different future with a backward-looking lens. Yeah, I agree. And so how do you dance on this magic line, Roger, of, on one hand, reject the premise, be that visitor from the future that we talked about before, think in unconstrained ways, ask the question, what would have to be true? all of that good stuff. And on one dimension, don't let the current models, paradigms, categories, et cetera, constrain us and be those chains. And then on the other hand, as we go, let's say, so we come up with the new idea, we've combined multiple models, maybe we've added our own new intellectual capital on top of that. And we have something new that's a, a beautiful combination of sort of standing on the shoulders of giants and innovating with our own new thinking and ideas on top of that. Uh, how do we walk that magic line between sort of leveraging the models of the past that have shown mm -hmm. to work, but not letting them be changed and out allowing us to think in unconstrained ways about those possibilities that could be in the future? Um, it's a good question. I know it's a good question because it took me about 10 years of work to f uh, figure the answer uh, out. Unfortunately, there is, an, there is an answer and it's a pretty straightforward one, which is, which is, don't don't accept in some sense the naming convention of the model and look instead of how the model delivers its benefits to the stakeholders right so if i use if i use um bob hat bob bob young and red hat right as as uh, an example there were two models in 1995, right, which was open uh, source software and proprietary software. And they were two completely separate worlds. 
you could either be open source and you compile Linux uh, compilations and, and sell them or, or you're Microsoft and you, you know, you sell licenses and, you know, have people go out and shoot people who uh, uh, share their license uh, or, or, or the like, uh, or at least sue the hell out of them. So it's two worlds. And when you think about those models in their totality, that is to use, to, to now use your metaphors is dragging change from the past. But if instead you just say, I'm not going to actually think about the model in its entirety, I'm just going to ask, what's great about that model for, let's say in this case, software uh, users, IT administrators, and the software company in question, right? What you can do is answer those questions, and then you've got these lists of things that are nice features of the model. And you can combine them in new ways, right? So you're not constrained by chains of the model in their existing form, but you get to see what's underneath them. And what Bob Young said is, gee, you know, what I, I actually don't like uh, sell, selling shrimp, uh, shrink wrap discs for 15, 20 bucks uh, through a mail order catalog. I don't, I, I don't like that at all. And I don't like being a tiny little firm that has no kind of uh, resources and competing with Yggdrasil and, and Slackware and these other Slacker kind of companies. But I do like the fact that the user gets to have this, the source code. So that's all I'm going to keep from the, the free software. Everything else I'm going to toss out. And you know, the, the proprietary model, I hate selling licenses. I hate selling cars with their hoods welded shut, as he, as he said, of software where you don't get the source code. I hate all of that, but boy, do I like the idea of service. These big corporations need, need to have their software serviced, and I like that. How's it about I just combine those two things, which is what he did. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up on every server in the world for free, not 15 bucks for free. You can do anything you want with it. We're going to become the biggest company and the only one that will be a credible service organization for big companies. So to me, that's the methodology. Look beneath the model to find its components and then just do a little exercise that said, what of those components kind of would I like to keep in a, in a new model? And you can do that anytime on any situation. And you know what, I, I, I would just say, scrolling back a little bit to how you described kind of your, your work, I think um, you, you, should, you, you should focus on the thing that you don't like currently tends to be what appears to be the necessity to make a trade-off, right? I think most of most of the things that you probably attack, if I if I look back at the last hundred you know initiatives you you and your folks have have done, I bet they would virtually all be figuring out a way around a trade off, an apparent trade off, right? And so, yeah, I think it's useful to think about it. What is the what is the trade off that we appear to have to make based on all the offerings? offerings uh, now. And the trade-off that IT people had to make is I either going to have free software from some kind of some company called like after a Norse god, Yggdrasil, and they are all are living in a basement with beer, beards, 
um, or I have to pay Microsoft a king's ransom and be completely under their thumb. That's my trade-off. Right? How can I break that trade-off is the fundamental uh, question. And Bob Young became a billionaire by, by breaking that, uh, that trade-off. Yes, that is a great, great analogy and a good place for thinking. It reminds me, so um, uh, we wrote a piece on this a while ago. It's, it's, a, it's a workshop that we created 30, 25, 30 years ago uh, to get people to think in a similar way. And let me bounce this off you. We call it the breakthrough game. So we get the executive team and, and whoever sort of, whoever they think are the most forward-leaning, non-obvious kind of thinkers that they want to be involved in creating a new category, thinking about a different future. And so, and we stand up and the first thing we say is, all right, you're all fired and you're at a new company and you can, you can take any asset that you want from the company you just got fired from, but you don't have to take any, or you could take a few or whatever you want or whatever you don't want. And we want now want to build a whole new company and set of products and capabilities in what we think is going to be the evolution of this category so that we can design the future of this category, create the products and services, do the marketing and dominate the next generation. And that idea of you're fired, you're in this new place, you can have anything you want from the old place, but nothing you don't want. Is that what we're talking about here, Professor? That That's a nice, a nice, uh, kind of simulation or game to play. I like it. I like it in part because it's by getting below the label and decomposing the pieces of the puzzle that the that the inspiration comes from. You've in some sense done done that. You've said you're fired. That means you don't have to drag along the model, the to totality of the model that is your company now. But but you can. You can grab pieces of it. Now, what I would probably, if, it, if I were doing that simulation, I'd say you got to grab at least one, right? Grab, grab one piece, like get, not thinking about, because what I've come to believe through all my work on innovation is that the absolute worst place to start is with a blank sheet of paper, uh, which is counterintuitive. I think it's the worst advice you can give somebody because what I've noticed is all the innovative ideas that I can that I can see out in the world came from combining attributes of things that existed already in in a in a new way. And Steve Jobs, the iPod, the iPod was the combination of an MP3 player and a music store, right? Uh, right. It wasn't like blank sheet of uh, paper. And and what I would what I would do if I were doing that exercise, the, the enhancement I'd say is, and I need you to pick another company. And what you're going to grab from them. And you got to show me that you've grabbed something from another company that currently exists with something from the company that you've just been fired from that produces something new to the world because those two things have never been, have never been combined in that way ever before. That's the, that, that's the slight modification I make. And why do I say that is because I think some people will struggle with you're you're fired you can make up anything they won't know they won't know where to go and and what sort of feedstock and what i what i say in, in all the work i do on this stuff is that i want to give the people thinking about it as much feedstock as as possible so i get them to decompose at least two models two conflicting models uh in order to get 
kind of what I say is raw materials for the assembly of a new model. Professor, um, no kidding. They call you, um, the world's greatest management thinker. That was, that was it. Those two additions grab one thing from the old company and pick another thing from someone else to get people away from a blank sheet of paper. That was awesome. Now, speaking of that, by the way, as a side note, um, one of the things that I think a lot about is the distinction between top-down and bottoms-up thinkers. And let me sort of bounce a theory off you in this regard. I often ask executive teams, uh, who here thinks they're a bottom-up or a top-down thinker? And amongst executives, when I ask, and I don't have raw data, but just experiential, mm-hmm. most of the room says they're a top-down thinker. And my experience is that's completely wrong, that most people are actually bottoms-up thinkers. That, In other words, seeing, in this case, not having blank sheets of paper and starting with one thing from your existing company and one thing from a new company gives them a start point to innovate from, uh, as opposed to just start with nothing. And so is there a correlation between how much we need existing things to hold on to and how much of a bottoms up thinker we are. That is to say, we, we, we learn this, 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 and then a puzzle emerges and we see the whole puzzle as opposed to somebody who can, you know, if you know somebody who's great in design by way of example, and they can walk into an empty house and they can see the possibility. Well, I don't have that as it relates to homes. I do as it relates to business. I can't see it. They literally have eyes that I don't have. And so is there a correlation between blank sheet of paper, not blank sheet of paper and tops down and bottoms up, or am I conflating things? It's, I mean, it's a good question. I guess my reaction to what you were saying is the people who are most effective can toggle, uh, right? They, they can toggle between there was this really interesting data point over there. I saw this over there and then I saw that over there. And so they're very grounded in, if you will, bottom up, but they're able to toggle into sort of a what does this mean kind of space. Could this mean something kind of special and different as opposed to being being sort of obsessed forever with, with all the stuff at, at the bottom? Um, but if they're only kind of a theoretician where they're just contemplating their proverbial navel, navel, then I, th- I, I just don't think they're ever going to get to something that's great and useful. Like business is truly an applied <laughs> discipline. You got, you got to be in the world. You got to be practical. You've got to make something a product or, or service. And so, so I'm dubious of, of people who can be this sort of like, I'm, I'm the brainiac who floats in the uh, clouds or floats at a hundred thousand feet. But I also worry about people who are just, are just caught up in the details. So toggle would toggle would be, it's a good question that I've not been asked before. Uh, So thinking on thinking from, from first principles, I'd say you'd want to teach people to toggle. Um, And if somebody's up in the sky, I would be asking them, just give me kind of a few things that you've seen that would make you think that that's a, that's a good idea. If somebody is trying to gather one more data and go out and talk to one more customer, I would say, time out. Like what, what would be a cool theory that you could build out of the five 
customers you've visited uh, already. Don't tell me about visiting another 15. Tell me, right. is there anything that's starting to emerge of a higher order out of what you've done? I think that's what I would do. So you just explained two things to me. Yeah. You explained my career as an executive. I am a top-down, non-obvious thinker. Mm-hmm. And I can hang out with you in the theoretical, talk about models, talk about all that stuff. I can hang out with you forever. And I, I'll make my own sort of grounding into, in other words, I don't need the example, right? If you read any, you pick up the Wall Street Journal today and you read a story about, you know, what's going on in the war. And it starts off with, you know, Svetlana's baby was only five minutes old when the bomb went off, right? And they're building a bottoms up set of data points for you that are often emotional or in some way create a human connection to then begin to build into what's happening in the war and give you the big picture. So they start very low with a, with something super captivating that's obvious and they build up into the bigger picture, which may be obvious or may not be obvious. I'm the opposite of that. And in my early career, my first, I started my first company at 18, that company failed And it failed because of not high-level strategic success, not lack lack of revenue, but lack of ability to deliver. That is to say, Mm. I couldn't toggle. And in order to become an executive, as somebody who's so overweighted on the non-obvious top-down, I had to learn to, if I could put it this way, tolerate a spreadsheet, because otherwise I wasn't going to get anywhere from here. And so with this, with you saying this, I just look at it, I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, why aren't we in business schools teaching people to toggle? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I I mean, I I would say the very, very best professors that I know, some, a non-trivial number of them are ex-executives who've gone back to, back to teach, um, teach toggling. I guess I, I like I think of in my in my old school a, a guy named David Beatty who was a highly successful CEO for a long time taught a course called the Top Manager's Perspective, which you could have thought of as oh that's going to be a you know a high level uh, thing, and and he would have a case in this like a case for the whole thing where they'd have to go out to a given company and like visit their factories and talk to customers and whatever. Uh, and this was top manager's perspective. What do you mean? You know, all that, that but he, uh, he taught them, uh, I think the importance of, uh, of toggling. Uh, and so, so it's not untaught. It's just not systematically taught that that was just a guy who came and said oh you know i love students and i'm going to teach this course and it wasn't in it wasn't in the required curriculum although in second year there was a bidding process for courses you always had to bid the most points to have a hope of getting into top managers uh perspective um i hadn't thought of it until this conversation about it being a toggling course but it is it is uh it was a toggling course, and I suspect that that like I suspect that it resonates at some some human level to an intelligent person, to a person who can conceptualize and toggle up, uh, but who somehow understands that this is this is a practical discipline 
and you need to be connected and you need to toggle down. And that's probably one reason why it was such a successful course. Hmm. Now there's at least uh, one other thing I'd love to talk to you about, um, if not Mm -hmm. 10,000 more, which is when going into a conversation that is designed to be, let me take even further step back. At the highest level, one of the things we say around here is there's only two kinds of business problems, knowing what to do and doing it. And so the first thing we need to figure out is which one are we dealing with? And of course, there are things that fall in between. Okay, so with that said, the work uh, we do is all thinking work or is probably 90% thinking and 10% execution on how to execute. And when we go into a thinking session, before we do the work, we frame the work. So this idea of um, what's the context for the thinking that we're about to do? What are the assumptions that we're about to use for the thinking that we're going to do? And how, how are we going to frame this discussion? And when the discussion feels like it's going off track, often I will find myself saying, are we having the right conversation? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the diverging going off track is, is very powerful, and sometimes it's not. I guess all of that said, Roger, what I'm asking is, if thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking, and framing the thinking's an important step in doing the then thinking, how do we most powerfully frame the thinking so that we can do the thinking, if I could put it that way? Sure, sure. No, I mean it's 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 funny uh, the degree to which you are you are challenging, kind of uh, cha- not challenging, channeling, kind of some of the greatest thinkers in in the history of the world. So we were you were channeling Aristotle before with your possibilities uh, comment. You're now channeling John Dewey, uh, perhaps the greatest pragmatist philosopher, American pragmatist philosopher in in, uh, uh, in history, who's the guy who said. A problem well framed is half solved, and I'm utterly convinced. And in my practice, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm utterly convinced that John Dewey is absolutely right. Although it might be sixty percent, so like he's the fifty, the half solved is is it could be conservative. And so, so I think it's important. the 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 only thing I would say that you you could take the wrong thing away, away from uh, from John Dewey. Which is which is that it's uh, it's unitary. What I what I think is that is that you got to keep revisiting the question of are we are we still framing the problem right, right? Because because people ask me, well, how do you know you've got the problem framed right? And I say, you don't, right? You don't. You don't. You don't. You're not all knowing, all seeing uh, uh, about it. But it's better to have that. This is the problem that I would like. To, uh, this this group to solve, then go to work at solving it. But to again, in the spirit of reflectiveness, to reflect on it a month later and say this was our and write it down. So this was our problem statement that this is what we're trying to solve. Now that we've done all this work, is that still the best statement we can come up with, or would we modify that statement in in some way so that this is our new uh, problem solving? You just keep you just keep iterating uh, uh, that. Uh, so that that might be a I think a misinterpretation of Dewey out of the out of that core 
core quote, but it sounds like it sounds like you channel Aristotle and and uh, John Dewey. And you know, if I don't say so myself, that's that's those are not bad guys to be channeling. Well, and at the risk of uh, being uh, overly laudatory, uh, may, maybe I'm channeling a little bit of uh, Roger Martin. As well. <laughs> <laughs> it could well, it could well be. I mean, it it does sound kind of eerily like we are eerie in a good way, yeah, like we are on the same page on a lot of. Uh, on a lot of fronts, which is fun. Um, now, maybe one more if I could. Sure. My experience, uh, Roger, is that there's not a lot of this kind of dialogue and this kind of thinking in the world. I mean, the conversation you and I are getting close to wrapping up here, uh, you don't hear this in, in political discourse. Uh, in my personal experience in 36 years in business, most business conversations are are way over rotated on execution, way over rotated on the way it is and the way it was. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to do, of course. But like the amount of sort of true thinking, whether it's in society, around politics, around any of the big challenges, be it climate change or war, or of course in business, entrepreneurship and innovation, I feel like that we don't have much of this. And as somebody who is uh, sharing your mission to bring more of these ideas and frameworks to bear so that we can do more thinking to create more exponential as opposed to incremental outcomes, that the world resists this a lot. And so I'm just curious about your assessment of the readiness for people to think in the ways in which um, we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I always try to be an optimist, but uh, but I probably share a bit of the pessimism on this front that you've just uh, just described, and I, and I guess I'm concerned that education feels to me to be more and more kind of apps based, right? It's teaching apps. It's as, as though the world knows lots about. Word and PowerPoint and Outlook, but they have no idea how Windows works. Kind of right. Um, they they're just they're just stuck at this at this apps level. And I think business school teaches apps, so so that you have a whole toolbox full of apps when you come out. But are you cognizant enough about where do, do you really understand the psychology and sociology that underlies your behavioral marketing class, or are you taught behavioral marketing? apps. So that's, that's, I guess, what I wonder. I, I wonder with the sort of the, we have to make education practical so that you get a job is you're being taught the apps for, for that job. And there aren't as many people who are being taught to, uh, to think. I mean, I did a somewhat strange thing for my for my era in that in that they were cutting this out in, in, entirely. But I went straight across the river from Harvard College to Harvard Business School, uh, and that was the period where they were saying, you know, you got to go out and get work experience and whatever. So there weren't very many of us in, in this, and uh, and 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 I I I was stunned. It took me a long, long time to adjust to the kind of conversation that we would have in class at the business school versus uh, undergrad, where I took a sort of a more practical thing. I, would, I was an economics major, so I wasn't, I wasn't a poetry major or a philosophy uh, uh, major. 
but it like hit me hit me like a ton of bricks it's like you don't want to step back and ask the question no 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 seriously what why should we think about it this way it was no no let's yeah let's get on with it let's get on with it let's crack the crack the case using the tools that we've been uh been uh been taught and so i guess i haven't thought about this for a long time i mean that was a long time ago but but when you asked me that question, that's the first thing that came to my mind is what it felt like in September uh, in the first month of business school when I said, God, I'm going to have to do two years of this sort of this sort of uh, don't question anything, learn and apply an app, learn and apply an app, learn and apply an app, which I did for for two years. And that's in some sense why I didn't love it unfortunately. Interesting. You're getting me to think about old, old things. Well, well, good. And as we get ready to wrap, you know, the, the thing that's happening for me in this conversation is something that we have now, uh, me and my colleagues here have started to describe as the thinker's high, mm. right? Because thinking blows open more thinking and then more thinking blows open more thinking. And I don't know if you have this experience. I have this all the time. I'm having it now, which is I'm sitting here going, I love my brain and I love using my brain, engage with other smart people. And it, there is this like runner's high endorphins that mm -hmm. I think many of us get from thinkers high. And my personal hope is that we're going to get more people addicted to thinkers high than currently seem to be. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. And, and it feels to me as though one way that that's more likely to happen is, is if people aren't, quite as instrumental right if like we weren't very instrumental in this conversation we we weren't trying to have as an output solving some problem after one you know kind of session together i think that made it a better thinking conversation because we weren't totally instrumental did we have no purpose? No, you know, we want to talk about a, a, a new book. You know, we want to talk about business ideas. We, we had some purpose, but it wasn't sort of really deadly output oriented. And I think that's one thing that stops people from, uh, from engaging in thinking conversations so that they can get into it and then get the endorphin uh, rush. It's because, it's because they never get into the conversation because they've got some output looming um and you know I, I think you often get further by saying we need a bit of a space to explore before we nail down okay you know we're heading in this direction what output do we do we need rather than you come to that very first meeting with this we have to have this output of the of, of the meeting well you know it's not going to yes that's not going to drive any thinking i uh or, or won't drive not that drives no thinking but it'll drive really sort of stick to the narrow path kind of uh thinking so inviting a little informality and allowing for some digressions uh expands our ability to think together i believe so I, yes. I believe so i also believe having fun does i don't know if you've noticed this christopher but i like I, there aren't many business meetings where people are clearly interested in having some fun. 
uh, right? It's, I, I always try to do this in, in when I when I work with with groups. Um, uh, I, I mean, I try to make it explicitly explicitly fun. Let's have some fun here, imagining things. It sometimes strikes people as a little weird. It's no, this is business. This is not fun. But I mean, we've had fun in this conversation. We uh, you know uh, talk about uh, Coen Brothers movies, right? Uh, right. <laughs> right. It, 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 but I think it makes it a more productive conversation if you don't say, you know, fun is out. This is all about business. Yes. Well, Professor, I could clearly talk to you forever. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? I don't think so. This has been this has been great. I'd, I'd be happy to do this uh, this anytime. And uh, and you know, if you like this, <laughs> like I guess I would say you you will probably like a new way to think. Yeah, well, I, I I have enjoyed your book very much. I've enjoyed your prior work very much, and uh, catching up with you on podcasts. And uh, this conversation has exceeded my expectations. So thank you, uh, Roger. And you are welcome back anytime. If you want to do a 200 part series on this stuff, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm welcome to do it or I'd be, lo I'd love to do it with you. Uh, you you're incredible. And I, um, you know, I know a lot of people have said a lot of extraordinary things to you, but I, I deeply appreciate your contributions. Um, there've been some management thinkers over time who really have, um, stretched people. And I think you're one of them. And uh, I deeply appreciate this time. It's my pleasure. I, I appreciate you taking so much time with me, Christopher. Thank you, Professor. All righty. Well, there he is, the legendary Roger Martin. His new book is out. I highly, highly recommend it. It's a number one bestseller. It's called The New Way to Think. Do yourself a favor and pick up a copy uh, as soon as you can. Also want to tell you, we deeply, deeply appreciate it when you share this podcast with your friends. Your podcast listening uh, device or uh, application of choice has a share feature. You can press that share feature right now and share this podcast with anybody that you think would like to have a breakthrough in their own thinking. And we always appreciate your social media shares. All right. We would like to thank. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of your time. Please remember to join me uh, for the first ever Cloud Wars Live Expo, June 28 through 30, 2022, in beautiful San Francisco at the Moscone, the world's most important new cloud event, cloudwarsexpo.com. Check it out. Now, more than ever, revenue matters. And my good friends at Clary help you answer the most seminal question in business. Are you going to meet, beat, or miss your revenue? Clary is the first platform that empowers you to run revenue like an enterprise process. Visit Clary.com today and get your entire company working together on revenue. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Uh, we must warn you that the creators of this oddcast were more than likely consuming libations. And before you take any actions based on the information you heard today, please consult your lawyer, shaman, mystic, priest, and of course, category designer. Kathleen Madigan was right. Thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Visit my friends at Atre.net. That's Atre.net if you want to build a legendary B2B website. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast with Brian Schulmeister called Grumpy Old Geeks. There's lots to be grumpy about right now. Uh, Jamie J and Sarah Knox do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Check out Lockhead.com today and subscribe to Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. The brothers Bobus do our web development, RJ and EX, and Cedric Biros 
does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weedon Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. If you want to do professional squadcasting or oddcasting, check out squadcast.fm. Please remember, get out of the left-hand lane. It's the passing lane. Don't be lame. Get out of the left-hand lane. Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Thank you so much. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you again for investing part of your life with me. And uh, on behalf of all of us here, please stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.